Hey, Crown Point. How you doing? So glad to see you. I, um, I'm Dan. If I don't know you, thanks, Dustin, for the kind words. I uh, felt like my mom was up here sharing a little bit about myself with you. Um, I, uh, I usually introduce myself here at the Crown Point campus as a campus pastor who's serving the church at large, but lately I've realized that that doesn't really connect with everybody. I've, I've learned lately that uh, I need to actually say, uh, hi, I'm Dan, and I'm married to Kristen Jacobson, because so many of you are me- like meeting my wife and you know who she is, and uh, I ain't angry about that. She's great, and so uh, you get to see God's blessing in my life. I also want to say thanks to Pastor Steve for the uh, invitation of uh, letting me uh, carry the ball here in Romans chapter 10. Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, I'm so glad that you're here. Thanks for being with us. We are in a series as a church where we are just week by week walking through the book of Romans. We're, we're taking it one verse at a time, and we're going just kind of systematically through it. And today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 10. You can flip in your apps, open your Bibles, Romans chapter 10, and we're going to be uh, looking at verses 5 through 9. This is where God's got us at right here this week. You came on an awesome, awesome Sunday to hear God's word. Do you believe that? Yes. Let's, let's see what it has to say. Watch this as I read along. It says this, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that a person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? Answer, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, say it with me, you will be saved. Let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, We come before you asking for your insight and your wisdom. God, may your spirit pour forth today and give us understanding into your word that we may know how to set aside our own righteousness, our own self-approval, our own self-goodness. Help us lay hold of the faith that you give to us, oh God. Help me, Lord, to tell the truth today, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in a couple weeks, Kristen and I will have the immense pleasure of notching our 10th wedding anniversary as a couple. Isn't that amazing? You're like, I think I applaud for you. Good job. Keep going, I guess. You're like, I don't know. Is that amazing? I just met you, Dan. That's fine. Good job. 10 years. Woo. We've been kind of, uh, you know, amping up to our 10-year wedding anniversary, and it's got me thinking about life, you know, in a, in a good way, uh, before I got engaged. I've been reminiscing a little bit about life before the proposal. Not because I want to go back to those days. Don't get me wrong. I'm happy with where God's put us. Yeah. Uh, but, but because life was so innocent at that time. Life was so simple at that time. Uh, Krista and I, we didn't have much. We didn't have, you know, two dimes to rub together, but we had love. We were... Innocent and naive, we knew that whatever's going to happen, we got you by my side, babe, we're going to be okay. I remember the time that I decided in my heart, I'm going to buy a ring for this girl. Guys, you remember that moment? There's a very definitive moment in the life of a man who gets married when he actually, we call it taking the plunge. 
It's not the moment at the altar. It's the moment when you in your heart say, I'm going to spend a ton of money on a little rock that's supposed to signify my feelings for this person. I was so young. I was in college. I was scrapping together some money to save for this ring. And I had no idea where to go to get a diamond ring. I knew nothing about diamonds. And so um, I, I saw one of my friends had just recently got engaged. And, and I looked at him. I said, hey, man, you're about as broke as I am. And you got really good taste. Where did you go to get your diamond ring? And he told me where he went. And I decided to pay his jeweler a little visit. When he told me it was on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, I should have, <laughs> should have known better. But naive as I was, I walked, I walked into that store just hoping that, you know, I could just do some browsing. I just go, you know, scope it out, get a feel for it, kind of understand a little bit about what diamonds are all about and kind of see some price tags. Look at that. Oh, that looks nice. Keep moving. You know, try and do that thing. But when I walked in, I was the only person inside this store. There's a security guard wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> and as, you know, discreet as I possibly could try to be, it was impossible because I was it. I was the only person. And I started like trying, trying to do this whole thing where you're looking in the case. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, terrified me, came this woman. She looked like Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> she, was, she was so like, you know, well put together, stern, so serious looking. She said, what brings you in today? I was like, I know, I don't belong here. I said, I'm trying to get engaged. She said, well, oh, perfect. We, we sell lots of wedding rings, sometimes more to the same person. I was like, I don't want to be that person. Just don't get me wrong. I just want one. just want one. She said, well, what, uh, what type of ring do you think you want? Do you want gold? Do you want platinum? Do you want white gold? Do you want yellow gold? Do you want this type of setting, that type of setting, this type of diamond, that type of diamond? Do you want an impave setting? What, what do you want? And I was like, What? Uh, I literally said this. I said, I don't really know. I just want her to say yes. Do you have any just say yes rings available? <laughs> That's what I want. I'll take that one. Sensing that I had absolutely zero business being in that store, she pulled out from underneath uh, her black velvet table this little card. It's like the idiot's guide to diamonds. She showed me the card. She started walking through it. She started saying words like cut, carrot, clarity. I was nodding along omnisciently saying, oh yeah, yeah, of course, of course, of course. And then um, she put the card down. She looked at me and I'll never forget this question as long as I live. She looked at me and she said, uh, now what do you think your budget is? And I looked back at her with all seriousness in my eyes and said, I don't have to think about that. I know. <laughs> Not much. She said, okay, well, um, let's do this. She took a yellow post-it note. She slid it across the black velvet. She said, why don't you write down your price range for me, what you think your price range is, and don't be afraid to push it a little bit more than you think it needs to be because, after all, this is a once-in-a-lifetime purchase. So I kind of took the piece of paper, feeling so out of my league. I looked around. I kind of covered it. I didn't want her to see it. And I put down four numbers on the page. Those are the biggest numbers I'd ever written down in my life. I was really tempted to write above them the words, less than. <laughs> but I didn't. And I didn't give her a range either. I said, this is the number. I got this from God. 
I took the, I, I turned it over. I slid it back to her. There's so much mystery in this whole moment. And she turned over my number. And as she looked upon what I had written, she started slowly taking all of the diamonds in their cases and taking them off of the top of the table and putting them back in their displays. And she said this, I kid you not, she said, she said, sir, maybe you'll have more success at a different type of jewelry store. We don't peddle in common jewelry here. Man, I was deflated. You ever had that moment? You're just, you realize like, I ain't a Rockefeller, but I just want the rock, right? <laughs> Taylor Swift didn't have that song out yet, but I inspired it, I think. I, I said, I like shiny things, but I'll marry her with a paper ring. That's what I'll do. And I realized in that moment a very, very specific lesson in life. I walked out of that Julia store a little deflated, a little bit honestly angry with my station in life, a little bit kind of wishing that I had a little bit more to give this girl that I thought that I really want to spend the rest of my life with. But, but it also dawned upon me that I was so grateful that the girl that I was falling in love with wasn't the type of girl that needed a five-figure ring to know that I loved her. And it dawned on me in that moment just how grateful I was for a relationship that was built upon each other and not based upon artifacts. And I realized that there were people in this world, grateful for them. There are people in this world who can write a five, six-figure check for a diamond ring. But a five-figure ring is worthless if it doesn't come with a relationship. You may be saying to yourself, okay, pastor, what does this have to do with Romans? And I'll tell you this, this is exactly what Paul finds himself dealing with with the Jewish people that he is arguing with. Paul has, uh, up to this point, been discussing a, um, a long-term relationship that God had with Israel. And the Jewish people did this exact thing with God. They valued his law more than they valued the relationship with him. They wanted to spend so much money on the ring that they neglected the relationship. Like a wedding ring, the law made them special in the world. It showed the rest of the nations that they belonged to God and that they were committed to him forever. Doing the law is what they thought would get God to say yes to them. So when Jesus came along and offered the kingdom of God to any who would believe and the family of God to any who would believe, the Jewish people pushed back. Israel rejected him. They said, whoa, whoa, whoa. we don't need a relationship with Jesus. We already have the ring. We like the law. We have the law. God has already chosen us already. We're good. And Paul is going to show us that a ring without relationship is worthless. Better than the ring is a real and right relationship with God that comes not by the law, but by faith. And if you've been tracking with us for any amount of time over the past couple of weeks, you know that Paul has been pushing us so far down this road of righteousness, being good with God, him saying yes to us, uh, not based upon doing good works, which is the law, but upon righteousness by faith. And this morning, Paul takes us in this text and he pushes this to an illustrative purpose to, to help us see salvation is not all about the law and its confusion and it's all the four C's of diamonds. It's not all of that. He says that actually the, the law of faith or, or faith says very simple words. There are simple words of faith that Paul brings out of us in this passage here. That's the title of my message today, just very simply, the simple words of faith. 
And the question we have here before us is, what do we have to do to get God to say yes to us? And so we join Paul in verse 5. You all with me? He says, for Moses, for Moses, strap in, we're going we're gonna, to, this is going to be, I'm going to help you see what he's pulling out because it's beautiful. It says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That's what Paul is pushing us towards to say that, that Moses talked about the law, the law, the law, the law. And that if you wanted to live under the law, you just had to do the law. Paul is um, calling to the witness stand, so to speak, for the sake of the Jewish brothers and sisters in the room. Their own author of the law. I mean, God authored the law, but Moses is the one who wrote it down. And so Paul says very clearly here, Moses writes, Moses writes this, that, that this righteousness that's based upon the law is simply that the person who does the commandments shall live by him. He's quoting from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. I know you probably didn't read Leviticus 18, 5 this morning with your cup of coffee. Here's what it says. Here's what Moses says, what God says. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. In other words, to say this is my commands, my law. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. This is what God expects from us. Some of you in here are type A. You just want to know, what do I have to do? Some of you are like Enneagrams, one, threes, eights. You're like, give me what I have to accomplish. Give me what I have to achieve. Come on, let me know what I got to do. What do I have to do to live with God? What do I got to do? And Paul says very clearly what Moses says is that all you have to do is all of the law, all of the time, and you will live. It's just that simple. All of the law, all of the time, and you will live always. And right away, don't you feel with me this sort of hopelessness in these words? This sort of sense of despair? All the law? I mean, let's be straight. How many don't even feel like you know all the law? I got a master's degree in the Bible. I like all the law. Like there's so much of the law and do it all the time, man. Like in case you forgot what God said in his law, he said things like this, like don't be jealous of your neighbor's stuff, which includes the house they live in, the car that they just bought and put in their driveway. I'm sorry, the truck that they just put in their driveway, <laughs> the third wheel that they just picked up, and that massive old camper that they haul around all over the place. Don't be, don't be jealous of, don't envy your neighbor's stuff, God says. We all look at ourselves and we go, scratch that one out. We missed that one. Don't take what isn't yours. God help my kids. <laughs> scratch that one off. Don't misrepresent the truth. Huh. How many of y'all never told a lie? Missed it, right? Don't misuse your sexuality. Ugh, missed that. And then to cap it all off, he kind of goes where like no kid wants it to go. He says, honor your parents. And we all said, missed it. We all missed it. I just gave you like half of the Ten Commandments, and that's like the big commandments, the commandments that we all should know and kind of frames the whole entirety of God's law. If I can't keep half of those... What hope for me is there in keeping all of God's law. 
And then you remember, you remember Jesus came and he started talking about the law? And we all think Jesus came with such grace that he fulfilled the law. But you know, Jesus didn't just like say, hey, forget about the law. He ratcheted the law up. He taught us that it's not just about the actions that you commit outside of your body, but it's about the attitudes that you have inside of your heart that make you guilty violators of the law. Jesus comes along and says, oh, so hey, have you ever had an improper thought or some longingly desire after some man or woman who isn't your spouse? That's adultery. Have you ever hated your brother in your heart? Murder. Maybe I could call to the witness stand James. James is that apostle who uh, wrote famously in his, his epistle, he says um, that faith works. If certainly anyone's going to be on our side of not having to keep all the law, it's going to be James. But James says in James 2 verse 10, he says this. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails with just one point has become guilty of all of it. All of it. Paul is going for the jugular here with the Jewish law keepers, but he's really coming after all of us saying, yeah, yeah, to get God's yes, all you have to do is keep the law. It's all you got to do is keep the law all the time. But I think what Paul is really saying, if I could put it back in my words, I think Paul is looking at all of us and he's peering across the table asking us this question, what do you think your price range is? He's asking us, how much, how much moral currency do you think you have? Can you afford this diamond that God is going to give to you if you can just pay up? Do you think you've got enough moral high ground with God to have done perfectly all of his law? Like Paul knows that we don't have the moral resources to do the law. All of us are simply naive Dan Jacobsons finding out we're never going to have enough money to buy the diamond ring. Which brings us to the first words of faith that Paul wants to push into our hearts today. The first words of faith, simple words of faith. The faith looks at the law and it says simply, I can't. I need you to say that with me. I can't. That's good for your soul. I can't. I mean, I've let my spiritual spending get out of control. I've racked up a debt to God that... I cannot any longer pay for myself. I can't. I'm broke. I can't. I can't. I can't. These two words, I can't, I think are the most infuriating words for me as a dad right now. I've got three little kids, ages six, four, and two. If you've ever raised six-year-olds, four-year-olds, or two-year-olds, you know the terror that comes when a kid tells you, I want to do it. Because you know they can't do it. All day long in my house, it's, Dad, I want to do it by myself. Dad, I want to do it by myself. Dad, I want to do it by myself. And it's immediately followed up with frustrating cries of, I can't do it. My kids say, I want to tie my own shoes. I want to buckle my own seatbelt. It's never important things like, I want to pay the mortgage this month. <laughs> Man, if just my six-year-old would be like, Dad, this month I got it. I'd be like, miracles happen. <laughs> and so I look at my kids, my, my sweet, innocent, incompetent kids. They're in the back seat trying to buckle the seatbelt themselves. I look at them, I go, I can't even buckle that thing. How are you going to buckle that thing? And I, I know there's not a chance they're going to buckle it up, but they try, and they try, and they wear themselves out trying. And they know the law. 
They know this car doesn't move until you're buckled up. But they think they can do the law. They think on their own they've got enough in them to do it. And so they try and they try and they try. And when they try, they can't. And when they can't, they cry. And when they cry, I'm like, I can't, I can't. I can't right now. I, I just can't right now. I, God, get me a Starbucks is what I say. <laughs> and as frustrating as these words are for me as an earthly father, do you know that there's one father in this world who doesn't uh, cringe at the thought of his kids saying, I can't, but actually he delights in them? It's your father in heaven. Nothing honors God as your father more than when he hears the cries of independence from his kids saying, God, I've got this. Turn to cries of dependence upon him saying, God, you've got to get this because I can't. Say, God, I want to be a loving and patient father. I don't want to lose my cool with my kids, but God, I can't. I need your help. I say in my own heart, God, I want to be a self-sacrificing husband. I want to be loving for my wife. I want to be all the things that you call me in your word to be. But God, on my own, I can't. I mean, let me just be totally honest with you. I, I, I come to work, and I want to be like, God, I want to be the most prayed up, passionate, loving, compassionate pastor that there's ever been. But I know, God, I can't. I need you. I need you. And that's why the first words of faith are not words of self-righteousness. They are words of self-rejection. They're words that frame for us the rest of these simple words of faith. Because if we don't get these first ones right, nothing else matters. The first words are simply this, I can't, I can't. Which is why verses 6 through 8, the rest of this passage is great hope for us. Because when we can't, we learn that all is not lost. Look, look with me at verse 6. Y'all still with me? Let's see what Paul has to say for us here. He says, For righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Right. Y'all are looking at me the same way I was looking at the text this week. Kind of confused, wondering, like, Paul, what's up with all the parentheses? What are you even talking about? This has no, I, I, don't, I don't get this. And as we go verse by verse through a book, you, you, you know that we're going to come to these moments here where it just requires a little bit more explanation for us to understand what Paul is getting at what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in our hearts. And I think if we unpack this a little bit, if you stay with me, we're going to see something beautiful here. Um, notice first, Paul is being incredibly sarcastic. And I don't know about you, but I love when the Bible is ironic and sarcastic and witty. I just love it. Paul, Paul says this. He says in verse 5, you know, Moses writes the, according to the works of the law. But here he says, uh, but the righteousness based on faith says... He's doing something here in this where he's personifying this concept of righteousness based on faith. He's using air quotes the right way. He says, the righteousness based on faith says. And what's crazy about this is that Paul takes, to combat the righteousness based on the law, he takes words and puts them into the words of righteousness based on faith. And the words that he puts into the mouth of righteousness based on faith are actually the words of Moses. And they're words right out of the law. 
In trying to undermine the law as the way that we become righteous, Paul says, no, 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 it's actually by faith. And here to prove it, I'm going to take one of your own precious moments of the law from one of your own precious forefathers, Moses, and show you how it actually doesn't point to the law. It points to Christ. Let me show you Deuteronomy 30. Stay, stay with me. You guys ready to take a little journey? Stay with me. Y'all here? Okay, okay. So here, here, here it is. Here's what Paul is borrowing from. He says, this commandment that I command to you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven, it being the commandment, that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That we may hear it, the commandment, and do it, the commandment. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us? In the Old Testament, that was a metaphor for hell, for a world of chaos. Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very dear to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Here's what we've got to know. When, when, when God gave Israel the law, it was the end of Moses' life. And he wanted the Israelites to know that there is no other law out there that you have to go try and find. What I'm giving you to you today is the law. This is the commandment that I'm giving to you. God was worried that his people might think they needed to have a better law, a more superior law, a spiritual pilgrimage, that maybe if someone could actually do the law well enough, they'd climb the stairway to heaven and find something better, or they could descend into the pit of hell and find something to keep them from heading there. Instead, he says, no, 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 this law is not far from you. It is in your heart and in your mouth. This is the commandment that Israel devoted themselves to and how they devoted themselves to it. My goodness, they would work and work and work so that the law was always on their mouth and was hiding deep inside their heart. And so in Romans, when Paul takes these words, he does something that only someone living after the resurrection of Jesus could do. He reinterprets the law in light of Jesus Christ. So where Moses writes about the commandments, Paul interpreted Christ as the fulfillment of the law. Where Moses says the word, this commandment that I command to you today, when he references the law, Paul says, no, 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 it's not about the law at all. It's not about the commandment. Look at it. Let's put Romans back up here. He says, now who's going to ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. And who is going to descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul is just simply trying to show us that while Moses taught a law that we could not do because Christ has come, he's changed everything so that we no longer have to wonder who's going to go up to heaven. No, someone came down from heaven. And who's going to go down into the pit? No, 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 that's not the question at all. Someone came up from the dead. And who is he? He's Jesus. Paul is trying to just simply show people who would have seen this in the law that it wasn't about the law, it was about Christ and shows them that while I can't, faith simply says, Jesus can. I can't do it. I can't climb my way up to the mysteries of God or the wisdom of God. I can't pothole myself down into the valley or the shadow of death into the abyss. But I have a savior who didn't need me to go up, he came down. And he didn't need me to go down, he came up. And his name is Jesus. He did all that I cannot. This is what Paul is saying. It's so good, isn't it? 
that Jesus can. Oh, how that warms my heart knowing that I can't do the law, I can't afford the ring, but there's someone who paid the penalty for me. In the midst of all of this and reframing all of this, we see God has done in Jesus what we could not do. The word of faith is then the reality that Jesus Christ has done it all. The, the word of faith while Jesus was alive was said by people who saw him and touched his garment and said, if you're willing, make me clean. The word of faith was came to us from the mouths of people who saw Jesus and talked with him and said, if you're willing, raise my son. The word of faith has always been a trust in the power of what Jesus can do. And this word of faith that we proclaim, you see it in verse 8 in the copy of your, your, your Bibles, the word of faith, it's a reference to what we just call in one word, the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is good news. And in verse 9, we see the best news that this word of faith could ever proclaim to us ever. And you don't get verse 9 without verses 6 through 8. You see that, right? Some of you memorized in Awana Romans chapter 10 verse 9. And without knowing all of that stuff that we just went through, you're never going to get what Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says. Here's what it says. That if you confess with your mouth, the word of faith is proclaimed. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, what church? Saved. Saved. The greatest news that we've ever heard, ever. What is the gospel? The gospel is simply this. It's I can't, Jesus can, and God did. That's what the gospel is, is that God has done something. What is it that he did? Well, look back in the verse with me. Just get your eyes in the text. He says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that what did God do? God raised him from the... How many people believe God could do amazing things? Many people believe that God could change your marriage. Many people believe that God could change your outlook on life. How many people believe that God could give the Bears a field goal quicker that could kick a 53-yard field goal in one second left on the clock? It's not in the text, but we all feel it. Eddie Pinheiro steps up two Monday nights ago, with one second on the clock, and you prayed the hardest prayer you've ever prayed in your life. You asked, you said, God, just one time, give us a break. <laughs> right? And he, with his little wobbly leg, he, he, and then you fell over, amazed. Miracle of miracles, Right? I mean, y'all are wearing your bear stuff today. I mean, I thought I was preaching to the choir here. <laughs> was that not the most impossible thing you ever thought would come in your life? Here's the good news. Better than all those things, God has done the impossible. Why? Because he raised Jesus from the dead. I don't know if you've been to a funeral lately. This year I buried two of my grandparents. I remember bringing my kids to the casket at my grandfather's funeral and my little son looked at him and said, Grandpa, wake up. He's four, you know? And I, I, I remember thinking, he knew Jesus. He's already awake, bro. 
But his body ain't waking up. We don't do that. Not yet. Because in this world, we are subject to death. Paul doesn't say that um, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that Jesus lived, that wouldn't take much faith at all. Believe that Jesus died, that wouldn't take much faith at all. What does he do? He goes right for the most impossible of all the circumstances. He says that God raised Jesus from a place where not many other people have been raised before. God raised Jesus from the dead on his own, apart from us having to go down and get him and pick him up and try and resuscitate him. God did it. God did it. That takes faith. That takes faith for us. We were dead and God resurrected our hope in Jesus. We were stained and God washed us clean in Jesus. We were unholy and God makes us holy in Jesus. But for Paul, the emphasis on the gospel is these two words. Not what you've done, but what God did. Acts chapter 2, here's the message that Peter preached. He said, this God, this Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Four verses later, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that God has done it, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Friends, the gospel is not, amen, about what you've done. Y'all are looking at me so nicely. I don't think you heard me, though. Because what I said is, it don't matter what you did, it matters what God did. And isn't that good news? I'm a pastor, righteous man of God, and I know my heart. I know the twisted nature inside of me. I know that I can use my same mouth for blessings and cursings. I know that left to myself, my own heart will lead me astray. I know that there's nothing good inside of me. All I have is to cling to the precious hope, the precious truth, that while I can't do it, Jesus can, and God did. I no longer have to worry about my future. I I look in the past, and I realize that God has already raised Jesus from the dead. Here's what God did. God sent Jesus from heaven. God sent Jesus to the cross. God made Jesus to become sin for us. God poured out his wrath on his only son for us. And God raised Jesus to new, perfect, eternal life from the dead. There's two essential components to this gospel that Paul is highlighting here, that God raised Jesus from the dead and that God made him Lord. To be Lord means that he is sovereign and ruling and reigning over all things. That he has the absolute authority in this world, in heaven and in hell, which his resurrection has defeated. That God has lifted him up to be all supreme. That Jesus is the mayor that your town wishes he had. For all of us ex-Illinois transplants, he's the governor that we all wish we had. Uh, he, he, is a, he is a ruling president that never gets embroiled in scandal. He is a king over nations across this globe. But more than all those things, he is Lord, which means the entirety of the cosmos is put under his feet for us to worship him. This is what God has done in Christ. He has made himself Lord and Savior. 
And so we look at God and faith is believing that he has done something that we could not do. Faith says that we can approach God now, not because we've earned it, but because he's made a way through his son. To say it another way, maybe uh, we say it this way, is that you can afford the diamond ring now, not because you got more money, but because God has paid the bill. You don't just get the rock, though. You get the entire relationship. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's yes to us. He's already said yes to us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that's what these last four words of verse 9 mean. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and God uh, raised him, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, here's these, say it with me. You will be saved. <laughs> saved. Have you ever asked yourself, saved from what? Like it sounds so much like a kid drowning in a pool. It sounds so much like a driver trapped inside of a fiery car accident. It sounds like uh, someone who's tragically on an airplane that's going down. Saved from what? Well, that's the beauty of the gospel. It's saved from everything. Saved primarily from yourself. Saved from those own internal desires that wage war against the spirit. You're saved from all the things that you want to lead yourself away from God. So God has saved you from yourself, but he's also more than that saved you from himself. He saved you from the wrath that he would pour out upon you for your sins. He put that upon Jesus. He, he saves you from the sea, from the abyss. But more than all those things, God has saved you to everything. He saved you to a relationship with himself, saved you to live life the way you were created, saved you for, to knowing your ultimate purpose and knowing your real God. And so the question is simply this, how do we embrace, how do we embrace this salvation? How do we make sure we don't miss it like Paul's audience missed it? And Paul says it so simply, the words are just this, that he says that I can't, but Jesus can, God did, and I believe. I believe, I believe. One of my favorite moments in all time TV history is that moment when Michael Scott is under a mountain of debt and he gets some advice from Creed, who's the last guy he wanted to take advice from. And he walks into the middle of the office and with a loud voice, he cries out, I declare. Oh, good. I'm not the only one. He says, I declare bankruptcy. And the joke is obviously that just saying the words bankruptcy doesn't actually help you declare bankruptcy. There's some of us here who hear that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You, you think it's kind of just like walking in the middle of office and saying, I declare bankruptcy? And there's certainly more to confessing Jesus Christ as Lord in our lives than just saying the words Jesus Christ is Lord. And we are so prone to saying, okay, yeah, I get that, um, but, but what do I do? What exactly is it that Paul tells us to believe, well, not that Jesus lived or died, but that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That takes faith, not blind faith, but simple faith. I asked myself this week, how do I know if I believe that message? And as I was asking myself that, I was looking at this whole entire text wondering, God, 
I love verse 9. I had no idea what verses 6 through 8 meant until this week. Why did Paul pull from Moses and put it right next to verse 9 to show me how to, how to believe? And, and I think the, the answer came this week when I was just thinking about why Paul did that. I think the reason is that Paul was giving us an image of what it looks like to believe. That we can look at the Israelites in all of their fastidious law keeping and see for sure that their belief in God's law drove them to dig it deep into their heart and have it come out of their mouth so that everything in their life was shaped by the law. And what it means for us to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead is that every ounce of our life, every moment of our life dug deep into our heart is the gospel. And what comes out of our heart and out of our life is always shaped by this one reality that Jesus Christ is my Lord who rose from the dead. For, for us to wake up in the morning and to say, God, I believe. I believe in the reality of the resurrection. It is embedded into my life. I believe, God, not just that you're God, but that you rose from the dead. And I believe that that changes everything. I believe that I can rest now knowing that you've done everything I need. In moments of despair or temptation, I run in my mind. I run in my mind to remember that he has defeated the enemy. When I believe... It causes me whenever I'm worried or anxious or troubled or just feeling insecure with who I am. I run in my mind to the words of the angel in that garden that day outside the tomb where two women looked up crying, seeing the stone rolled away. And the angel said what seems like the most impossible words in scripture, do not be afraid. Do you have any fears in your life? Are you worried about tomorrow at your job? Are you worried about how your kids are going to grow up or who they're going to marry or who, who they're going to take to prom? Are you worried about what's happening at your job or what's happening in your country or what's happening around the world? Are you worried or afraid in any way? The angel tells us, do not be afraid. Why? For he is not here. He is risen. The empty tomb, the empty grave encourages our hope and encourages our faith that we might live out every day in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is my Lord. That changes the way that I raise my kids. It changes the way that I do my job. It changes the way that I spend my money. It changes the way I handle my body. When I believe deep down inside of me that God did the hardest thing. I believe and confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And because he's Lord, he's got me. Because he's Lord, I'm done giving uh, control of my life to myself. I give it to him. Because he's Lord, I I'm going to trust him at every turn because he rules it all and he can have all of me. That's the gospel. That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our hearts, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved to enjoy God forever. And that's what a ring is, right? It's a guy in love with a girl on his knees, in some sense saying, I want you to wear this forever, but really saying, above all, 
I just want to be with you forever. And I can't. Jesus can. God did. So I believe. I can't. But Jesus can. And God did. So I believe. I can't. Jesus can. God did. Do you believe?